Not yet. No, not at all. None. None. Everything will run smoothly. Yes. All right, well, let's get started because um, we've got a lot of content today. Um, this is going to be a part one of two because um, the volume of stuff we're studying just didn't fit in one. And so uh, I'm kind of expecting to get to a point where it's like, oh, we ran out of time. Uh, but hopefully it'll divide where I intended to divide and not earlier. Um, found my Bible, so praise the Lord. Yeah, well, it was in the most logical place ever. We have a bag called the church bag that has books and stuff that we take to church, and it was in the church bag. So. Anyways, um, let's pray, and I would appreciate if you would pray for me as we pray, because um, I'm always kind of freaked out when I teach. Um, there's two verses that weigh heavy on me. The first is, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that as such you incur stricter judgment. And James, and the other one is that, um, woe to him who puts a stumbling block before one of these little ones, it's the better for him that a millstone be hung around his neck and he'd be thrown into the sea. Um, and the material we're going to touch today is, uh, could be seen as a stumbling stone. Because if you have just a straightforward understanding of what the Bible is, straightforward understanding, it's inspired, it's inerrant, it's perfect. What we're going to share today is a, a deeper picture of what the New Testament is. And um, I need to give you that information before I can give you, I need, to sh I need to, sh to tell you what the problem is before I can give you the solution. And that to me bothers me because I know that this is a rock that people stumble over often. And I hope that I do a good job of giving you the solution, but um, you can just pray for me because uh, I'm a little bit freaked out. Uh, so I just pray to Jesus that you would, um, that you would enable us to um, go down in the basement and see what's there. And uh, ultimately, Lord, we know that uh, your word is sure and true and uh, unchanging. And we know, Lord, that um, you said heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And we've seen, we will find out that that is true. Um, but I just pray, Lord, that you give us the confidence and that you give us the security and the ability to look at what the facts are. So here it's trying to reconnect. It said it's trying to reconnect. Hmm. It was working. It was working. Until you started praying. Okay. <laughs> and then when you stop praying, it's live again. Okay. Whatever. Um, we'll try not to be too distracted by that. Technology can be a help, but it can also be a distraction. So, um, so the content of today is looking at basically providing a response to the Da Vinci Code. And the Da Vinci Code, how many here know what the Da Vinci Code is? Um, has anybody actually read it, watched the movie? Watched the movie. Watched the movie. Did you, you read it? Okay. Yeah. So uh, last, when I prepared this material, I looked on just a Google search, most, pop, most published books in the world. And at that time, it was the fifth most read book in the world. So it had like, Whoa, uh, yeah. Chronicles of Narnia was up there at like number two, Lord of the Rings, number three, and it was like number four was the Da Vinci Code. So last night, I did another Google search because Google, I mean, I don't know where these things come from, but the first thing that came up was the, the most published books in the UK, and it was number one. And C.S. Lewis didn't even show up there. Then it was like uh, Half-Blood Prince and Shades of Grey was like 20th and stuff oh, like that. Yeah. Um, but the point is that the, the Da Vinci Code, like when it came on the scene, what was it, like 2005 or something like that, you know, and, and everybody was talking about it and there were all these books being published. And, and I, there, there was a big guffuffle and I kind of felt like it blew over because the Christians kind of moved on from there. But the non-Christians are still reading it. Yeah. And it's still, you know, as I'm... 
I've been amazed as I'm working at the University of Sherbrooke as I try and present stuff in the Bible, how often it comes up, well, the mm -hmm. Bible was just collected at the Council of Nicaea. Um, Jesus only became God at the Council of Nicaea. So, you know, um, these complete nonsense ideas, you know, if you know anything about history, if you know anything about the Bible, it's complete nonsense. And yet these ideas circulate, mm -hmm. and, and they're seen as rival. Um, and then you have really disappointing things, like McLean's magazine. Yeah. I no longer take it. I'm yeah. so yeah. sick of McLean's. I got off the McLean's magazine when they did oh. that nude woman with the thing over her eyes. That was a few years back. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. But, so this is the cover of McLean's magazine for Easter last year. Did Jesus really exist? The science is in. New memory research is casting doubt on the few things we thought we knew about Jesus. Now a brilliant number of experts think he didn't exist at all. And of course, as most of us, you know, as Christians, we look at that and just say, well, pff, not going there and just, just pass on by. But then, you know, also interestingly enough, you know, it used to be Easter time, you put on like the Ten Commandments and Ben-Hur and stuff like that. I noticed this Easter, this past Easter, around Easter time, on Netflix, which is, I don't watch TV, I watch Netflix. Um, they, they have seasonal stuff that, that comes on for a little bit and then it disappears again because they don't want to pay for the license all year. Da Vinci Code is the seasonal uh, entertainment of choice now, as well as uh, documentaries. The truth of the Da Vinci Code, the conspiracy theory of the Da Vinci Code, what is true, conversation with Dan Brown, this sort of stuff. Um, this sort of stuff gets circulated and, and the problem is most people aren't going to be experts in Jesus studies were in the New Testament, right? Just like I'm not going to be a, an expert in, you know, cosmology or in, um, you know, what, name a field of science. I'm not going to be an expert. Or in advanced mathematics, for example. But I enjoyed watching a, a Netflix show called Numbers where there's this guy that do, was doing really advanced mathematics. And I was like, oh, okay, so that you can do things with numbers I never imagined. And a lot of us, we get educated in these ways just by, through our entertainment. Mm -hmm. And you kind of expect when people do documentaries, when people publish articles like that, that they're going to be somewhat accurate. Um, and in a lot of cases, when it comes to uh, the New Testament and to Jesus studies, it's just open season. And, and people are able to publish things that are just complete nonsense. Now, in the case of this article, I actually did read it. Um, it's written very cleverly because they start with Bert Ehrman, who is a, one of the most renowned New Testament scholars. He's an atheist. He's well, I don't know if he's an atheist, but he tends to be very anti-Christian. He's, he's not a Christian. Christian New Testament scholar. Sure. Their, their number is Legion. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Why would you bother? Why would you devote your life? That is a very good question. Um, that was true. Let, let me finish my my, <laughs> my thing here. So it's. This article starts off with, um, you know, Bart Ehrman casting doubt on we don't really know some of these things about the New Testament. But then about the middle of the article, it comes back to, and, and the person dialoguing with Bert Ehrman says, based on all that we've said, it's surprising he doesn't go further. What he actually affirms is Jesus actually existed, he taught, he performed miracles, he died on a Roman cross, he was a Jew, he lived at the right time. And then he goes on to somebody else who is not a reputable scholar, to prove his claim that Jesus never even existed, because this is a very sidelined view. Um, well, we're going to talk about Jesus studies next week more, uh, more in depth, but uh, this comes from the first quest for the historical Jesus. It's almost 100 years out of date, the idea that Jesus didn't exist. 
because scientifically speaking, it's, the evidence is there that Jesus existed. Um, but I digress, because I was just so frustrated by that article, I just wanted to... <laughs> um, it, it's just frustrating that people present, like this, you know, the title is like, did Jesus even exist? And we're doubting the few things we actually knew about him. Um, but in the article, if you read it, if you, if you do your work, don't just read the beginning, don't just read the end, but somewhere in the middle they mention, oh, by the way, the scholarship actually affirms that there's, a, there's certain facts that are non-negotiable about Jesus, no matter how you look at it. Okay, so... Um, Perhaps the most important part of this class is going to be what I'm going to share right now. Um, I went through seminary. I just caused a little bit of debate on my Facebook. Didn't mean to, but I said uh, I want to write a book sometime called How My Faith Survived Seminary because seminary really caused me to challenge my faith. Um, and one of the hardest things was being presented with material. Here's how to read the Bible critically. Here's historical Jesus studies. And you're reading from people like Bert Ehrman, who are anti-Christian at times, or who just look at the Bible and, from a completely secular perspective, they're studying Jesus, they're studying the New Testament. And you need to master this material, but then somehow you need to stand up in church on Sunday and preach, or you know, you go home and, and you try and pray, and you're like, how do you reconcile these two? And so, and the, there were ways that my seminary helped us to try and reconcile them. I didn't find them convincing personally, and so um, this is how I deal with that tension between secular studies and Christianity. So, uh, I want to talk about two hats. You know, sometimes in life, you have to put on a different hat. You, you become a plumber, or you become a, um, an accountant in your, in your home, and you, you say, I'm putting on a different hat. So, I want to talk about a perspective, and I'm going to say this is a different hat. So, this is the Christian perspective that we're all familiar with. Um, when we read the Bible, we're reading it as the Word of God. We're saying, God, speak to me. God, change my heart. Uh, this is the word of uh, the eternal being that caused everything to come into being, that organized everything, that uh, is the center of the moral uh, code that we, we sense in our hearts. So this is Christianity. When we're reading the Bible as Christians, or as we could say conservatives. There's another way of reading the Bible, and that is from the outside looking in. As we could call it a secular perspective. I've used the word liberal, although in my debate on, on Facebook I remembered, man... Academics get really uptight when you use the word liberal. So maybe a better way to say it would be um, secular academic. Secular academic. And um, a phrase that's helpful is methodological. And I do apologize to people watching on Facebook because I don't know how to switch this. It's a mirror image on Facebook, but I don't know how to deal with that. Um, methodological naturalism. Methodological means this is our method. Naturalism meaning basically atheism or excluding miracles from the equation. So in order to help us understand what I'm talking about here, we can just imagine that you're taking a course on world religions over at you know, Bishops or at the University of Sherbrooke. And perhaps you want to study, just to educate yourself, or because you're taking a degree in the humanities, you want to know about the five major religions. So you're taking a course, and they're going to teach you about Islam, they're going to teach you about Judaism, about Christianity, about Hinduism, about Buddhism, and perhaps a little segment on you know, animism and stuff like that to encompass the rest of it. Now, the way that they're going to teach this course is going to be very different than if you went to the local mosque and said, teach me about Islam. Or if you went to, I don't think we have any, any 
Hindu temples around here, but if you went to India, sat in the temple and said, teach me about, Indi about Hinduism. This is going to be from the outside looking in, okay? And this is a valid perspective. And, and when, we're, when we're studying other religions, we understand there is a methodological approach that we're going to use as we're studying a different religion. We're not going to, when we, when we read you know, the events of, of the life of Muhammad, we're not going to assume that these miracles actually happened. We're, we're not going to approach it from the perspective, if we're not Muslims, we're not going to approach it from the perspective that you know, God revealed the Quran to him. We're going to approach it from the perspective of what actually happened in a human perspective, as well as you know, the account of the Buddha or, um, or Hinduism or whatever. So what is the big difference? So this is the methodological naturalism. What is the big difference between these two hats? You think you guys can figure out just in, in one or two words what the big difference is between these two? Faith. 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 Uh, that is one way of putting it. Um, faith in what? A wonderful answer. <laughs> <laughs> faith in what's written in Scripture, in the existence of God. Yeah. Um, that, that is an important point that I did not think of. That, that from the inside out, you're going to begin with the assumption that it's true, and the outside in, you're going to not. Mm. But, but the question is, what is true? And, the, and the, the big difference here is miracles. Miracles. This is why I said methodological naturalism. When you're studying a religion from the outside looking in, you're not going to assume that these miracles actually happened. You're going to be looking for naturalistic explanations. Of, of these accounts. Um, and this is just, this is normal. This is how we study other religions. And we need to be aware that people are studying our religion from the outside looking in. And they're not necessarily evil people. They're not necessarily anti-Christian. Although there are anti-Christian people out there. Um, you asked me why uh, I thought Bert Ehrman is anti-Christian. Because he is. He, he writes things maliciously. Mm -hmm using the information to try and disprove Christianity. Um, and, uh, I don't know, maybe that's uncharitable to say that he's anti-Christian, but there are certainly people out there that get miffed, or, or through the process of, of earning their doctorate, they lose their faith, and then they're educated in the field, and they don't have anything to do with it because they can't be a pastor anymore, and these people tend to then become the professionals in the field. That's one explanation, perhaps, for why there's so many anti-Christian people in the field of New Testament studies and Jesus studies. Um, which is difficult for us, but actually it, it, ends, it ends up um, bolstering our claims because so many people doing research on Jesus and on the New Testament actually really do not like Christianity. This is the reality of the field. Um, that a lot of them lost their faith in the process, and they're studying Jesus as a historical figure, but they're not trying to prove Christianity, they're trying to disprove Christianity. And so a lot of the, the progress in this field has been advanced by people trying to disprove Christianity. Um, but that is an aside. The main thing I want you to get was the difference between these two hats. So we're going to be talking about secular, the secular academic perspective is this hat, and the Christian perspective is this hat. We're going to, at times, approach the same material. This is not working. <laughs> at times, well, you can approach the same question from two different perspectives. 
and um, you can get two different results, and both are helpful in their own way. Now, each of these has limitations. Is that where we are next in the notes? Yeah, each two has limitations. Okay, so what are the limitations? I'll just tell you some of the limitations of a faith-based perspective. Um, obviously, it's not going to be respected by non-Christians. You, you come to somebody and they say, why do you believe the Bible is true? And you just say, well, because I believe it. That's not going to make them jump up and down and say, wow, the evidence is overwhelming. Um, it's going to tend to be difficult to pass on to our really academically minded kids. If they ask a lot of questions and we just say, well, I just believe, I just believe. Um, it can be hard to make real progress in, in um, I want to say, a scientific way or learning new information because we're just like, this is what the truth is and, and we don't want to question. We don't want to ask the hard questions. So it can be hard to make progress. Those are some of the, diff the, the limitations of a faith-based perspective. What are some of the limitations of um, a liberal or a secular academic perspective? You're not going to accept the miracles or the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you know, or the disappearance of Mohammed or whatever it is. Then you can't understand the mentality of believing all the rest. I mean, it's uh, my faith is based on the resurrection of Jesus, you know. Yeah. <laughs> if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we might as well go home, sort of idea. Yeah. Um, so I heard you say two things. One is that it rules out miracles from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So what if miracles actually happened? Mm -hmm. From a secular perspective, I mean, I don't even have a problem saying that a lot of the miracles recorded in other religions actually happened. I think Muhammad did have some sort of an angelic visitor. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, some of the, the miracles surrounding Hinduism and Buddhism, I think, actually happened because that's not a problem for me. I just don't believe they came from the true God. Um, but from a secular academic perspective, you're going to rule that out. And you're going to say, no, miracles don't happen. It's, it's a naturalistic world that we live in. And, and you're ruling that out from the beginning from, from your field of vision. So this can be a bias because we have good reason to believe that miracles actually happen. For one thing, we've already been through at least five arguments for the existence of God. We've talked about the Big Bang, we've talked about the fine-tuning of the universe, we've talked about the moral argument, uh, the teleological argument, the uh, ontological argument. We have good reason to believe there is a God behind all this. So why should we assume that he doesn't at times break the laws of nature and, and reveal himself? This is in fact one of the major critiques that atheists have against Christians. Why doesn't God show himself? Well, he does. They're called miracles. They're all through the Bible. They're well attested. Oh, we rule those out because we're, we're approached about from a secular academic perspective. Um, also, miracles are attested all over the world, um, especially from the third world. But also, there's been a lot of great studies in hospitals where doctors have, have um, recorded and documented miracles that have actually happened in, in, in their words. And those materials are out there. Um, if you want to look at them. So there's, we have good reason to believe that miracles actually happen. So ruling miracles out from the beginning is, you know, it, it introduces a bias and a blind spot. Also, um, there's going to be um, a very high bar of acceptance, or how did I put that here? That we're only going to believe things that can be proven. Only things that can be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt are what, is what we're going to accept. Now, if you stop to think about somebody like your grandparent or your great-grandparent, uh, what can actually be proven about that person? T tell me some things about your great-grandparents that could be proven. 
you did a little bit of research. We worked, he, my grandfather worked at the university. Great-grandfather. Yeah. What's that? Your great-grandfather. Oh, great-grandfather. They had children. They had children. <laughs> <laughs> we know for sure they had children. Oh, great-grandfather. My, my great-grandfather was a famous race car driver. Okay. And he was French-Canadian. Okay. Yay! Cool. <laughs> So some people are, are going to be a bit famous, uh -huh. and, and they'll have some information. My, my father the other day texted me, I'm standing in front of my dad's grave. And that was kind of like, wow, okay. And, and so we kind of had this dialogue about, I knew I have a grandfather, I knew he died, I knew he must be buried somewhere, but it had never really occurred to me he's got a grave somewhere. Uh, and I thought I should visit that sometime. Um, so most people are going to have at least two bits of solid information reported about them. What are the two bits of information? Birth and death. Birth and death. Okay, so I know if I go to a geographical location, which I know where it is now, I can go to the gravesite of Hank Dixon, or Hank, uh, I can go to the, the gravesite of my uh, grandfather, and I can look at his grave and see what his name was, see what his birth date was, and his death date. Right? Kind of the macabre thought is that I know my birth date, but I don't know my death date yet. <laughs> this is going to become, you know, part of the, the important information that people, you know, that, that will define my life. Um, and perhaps there will be some information underneath, such as dearly beloved, such as, you know, some famous people might, might have lines underneath, like, you know, we appreciate his contribution to, to this field of science or something like that. So there's often information on the gravestone, and this is, you know, reliable information. It's very unlikely that somebody's going to falsify their, their death records or something like that. It's possible. <laughs> What's that? It's engraved in stone. <laughs> so there's information like that. And then there's like, you know, stories that my dad told me about my grandfather. There's stories that my grandmother has told me about my grandfather. There, there's these sorts of stories. But if we're talking about what the, are the actual facts, what do we actually know about my grandfather, I'm going to come back to this is probably the, what will be accepted by academia is just a few data points of information, okay? So I'm gonna jump ahead because we have this idea clear in our minds, I have this material later, but for Jesus, when we're looking at it from a secular academic perspective, there are a few data points that are absolutely established. Uh, and you might as well just list them here somewhere. Uh, I have them later on in the notes, but uh, let's just list them here. The first. Yeah, just stay on, on page one. Okay. We definitely know that he was a Jew who lived you know, in Palestine. So he was definitely Jewish. Uh, he was definitely baptized by John in the Jordan River. Mm -hmm. So he was Jewish. He was definitely baptized by John in the Jordan River. He definitely died on a Roman cross. Probably at 33 AD, as early as 30 AD, somewhere in there. So definitely Jewish, definitely baptized by John, definitely died around 30 to 33 AD. Um, other things that are known with a great degree of certainty are that he was a teacher. Uh, he, he taught in parables. Uh, and he debated with the Jewish authorities. So he was a teacher and, and he debated. Um, also, he had Jewish followers. He, he, he led disciples around. He was a miracle worker. This is something that, that, has been re that was rejected for a long time, that he worked miracles, but um, the, um, the Mishnah, I believe it was the Mishnah, one of the Jew early Jewish writings mentions Jesus. This is from about the 4th or 5th century. 
um, critiquing him and, and, and saying that he was a false prophet. And one of the things it mentions is that he went around casting out demons and performing miracles. So it's a hostile witness. I don't have the, the footnote for that, but it, I believe it's one of the Mishnahs about Jesus. And, it, and it's important not necessarily for proving him um, because it's so late, but it's, early, it's, it's not the sort of source that would have invented something like Jesus having miracle working powers. And so that's what has brought the fact that Jesus worked miracles back into the equation. Of course, from the secular academic perspective, you would say, well, he was, he, he was basically a charlatan or he had some way of making people think he was performing miracles. Um, but the miracle working has come back into the equation. And next week in your reading, you're going to see uh, things like Jesus was, like, was uh, buried in a known tomb. His grave was discovered by his women followers. Uh, there were post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And his, um, his birth and or his, the resurrection stories became the catalyst that started the, the Christian religion. So these are some of the data points about Jesus that are absolutely known about Jesus. And of course, there's always, there's always going to be somebody that's going to call into question one of these. But increasingly, the, the consensus of, of the secular academia towards Jesus is he definitely was Jewish, he definitely lived, he definitely was baptized by John, he definitely died on the cross. Um, and then these other things are, are pretty certain. Now, that doesn't mean that all of secular academia says, he is Lord, let us worship him. Within that, there's a whole range of possibilities of who Jesus could have been. He could have been a messianic prophet. There were lots of, of messianic figures at that time. He could have just been another guy that's proclaiming liberation for Israel. He could have been a cynic philosopher, which is a Greek idea, but some people would bring it in just because of the way he lived was very much like the Greek cynics. Um, and I don't have the full list here, but there's other options that, of things that he could have been, ways that we can interpret these data points uh, from a secular perspective. Um, I'm jumping all over my notes. I put them in order for a reason, Josiah. Put them in order for a reason. Okay, we're going to leave that there for a second. When you say it is absolutely a data point that he was baptized by John in the Jordan, are you saying something outside of the Bible gives you that the data reason, point? The reason that is such an established data point is because it's so embarrassing. <laughs> and so next week we're going to talk about the criteria of embarrassment. This is something that came up in the in the third quest of the historical Jesus as, as we're getting better tools for understanding you know, the reality of the historical Jesus, um, it's very unlikely that Christians would have invented this. A, because it serves no purpose. We still don't really know why Jesus was baptized. Like, don't ask me to preach on it because I don't know why he was baptized. He didn't sin, right? And because it shows, um, it seems to show subservience to John. You know, John is baptized sin, so why did he do that? And, and it, it's not really picked up. It doesn't, it doesn't become important in later Christian doctrine. And so this is the criteria of embarrassment and the criteria of dissimilarity. It's dissimilar to, to later established Christian doctrine. So it's very unlikely that later Christians would have invented this. And also, it's embarrassing. And so it's very unlikely that later Christians would have invented this. Now, just because we're on that story... Um, Secular academics would look at that story and say, well, the fact that God spoke from heaven over Jesus, and you have the whole trinity, you have God, and then the spirit descending like a dove on Jesus, you have the whole trinity right there. They would say, well, this is a, you know, later Christians did believe in the trinity, so perhaps they read that back into the story. But the nugget of the story itself being 
you know, that Jesus was baptized, they would say, no, this is definitely, this definitely happened because we can't imagine why he would have been invented. As well, John saying, um, why do you come to me to be baptized? I am baptizing you. Um, this, I, I would imagine secular academics would look at that and say, this is later Christians trying to, you know, massage the uncomfortableness of the situation. But the fact that Jesus was baptized is, is a really uncomfortable thing, and for that reason it becomes more likely that it actually happened. So this right away we're starting to see the two hats, right? Because as I say all that about the criteria of embarrassment and the similarity and stuff like that, we're talking from a secular academic perspective, and you're saying, well, hold on a second. The Bible was written by God. It was inspired by inspired, you know, people that, that uh, how does it, it go, that um, no, into, no prophecy of scripture is uh, written by, is subjected to personal opinion, but the writers um, were inspired by God to write. This is uh, Second Peter somewhere, 316, I believe. So how do we, how do we reconcile these, these two differences? We need to be able to be comfortable jumping over to the secular hat to say, using the methodological naturalism, over here we're going to just pretend that we're naturalists, we're going to pretend we're atheists, look at the facts, and from that perspective, there are certain things that are very, very certain in the gospel accounts. Okay, that doesn't mean that I'm going to become an atheist. That just means that right now, I'm going to use methodological naturalism. And from this perspective, we can prove certain data points in the life of Jesus. Then I'm going to jump over here and say, isn't it nice that there's these data points that are for sure certain, similar to my grandfather's birth and death dates, and these might become kind of anchor points for the, the larger stories that are less certain, but they, that, that fill out the picture of who my grandfather was, or that fill out the picture of who Jesus was. There's very little, you know, from an academic perspective, there's very little support for, for instance, Jesus walking on the water. Uh, it's ruled out by, by the criteria of naturalism anyways. But, um, yeah. But over from a faith perspective, I can say, I don't have any problem with Jesus walking on the water. And these data points help to, to um, substantiate that and support that. Um, so the interaction between these two points, it's good that we're spending time here. It's taking more time than I, I thought, but this is really the really important part. So let's, let's get it right. Um, we can talk about three different buckets. So between the secular academic perspective and the conservative perspective, there's tension between these two. And just basically, there's places where there's complete agreement. It's on page two at the top. There's places where there is conflict, where the Bible says one thing and secular academia says another. And there's places of silence, where the Bible says something, but the secular academia just doesn't say anything. It's just silent. Uh, and because a lot of these things are very ancient, uh, there's a lot of areas of, of silence. So how can we begin to tease out uh, a relationship between these two? So I just um, said faith and facts. By facts, I mean secular academia. It's just kind of a, a slogan that, that gets it in your mind. You need to understand by facts what I mean is facts that can be established through the criteria of secular academia. Facts can be wrong. Or things that aren't facts can be true. It was true that I went to Tim Hortons this week and drank coffee, but you can't prove that. <laughs> if anybody... That's the bill. <laughs> well, now the bill would be a fact. Yeah. But it just so happens that I threw the receipt out on the way home. On the way home. Oh. And if you can't find the fact, 
If you can't find the receipt, that doesn't invalidate the truth that I was there. Right. It just right. means it's less provable. Yeah. Right, exactly. Provable. It's like a theology. Yeah. So, so that was very good, though, that thing about proof. What do you know about your great-grandfather? That's, that's mm -hmm. shocking. That's only like two generations ago. Yeah. yeah. To, and, and it's gone. Yeah. I mean, gone. It's, I mean, obviously, my grandfather, great-grandfather wasn't the, the nugget of a religion that started, yeah. so certainly more people would be paying attention to Jesus than, mm -hmm. but so interesting. So the first bucket is where the faith is in accord with the facts, and um, I'm excited about my religion in the fact that most of the major points of our religion are substantiated factually. Uh, when I say factually, I mean there's good evidence. Yeah for most of the facts. Uh, the Israelites very likely were in Egypt where there was, when they were supposed to be. There is some debate about that, although it's very far back in history. They certainly were in Palestine when they were supposed to be. Uh, they've discovered David now, uh, so they definitely, the Davidic line was there. Um, a lot of the prophets, the things that they were saying, the things that were recounting are all substantiated. We know the Babylonians, we know the Assyrians. Uh, we know about uh, now, there's some of the peoples that they conquered that we don't know about anymore. I'm not sure if it's the Canaanites or, or some of those, but most of them, we, we found their artifacts, we know about mm -hmm. them, and there's new archaeology going on all the time to find more. Um, they definitely were deported to Babylon when they were supposed to be. They were definitely went back to Israel when they were supposed to be, uh, when they were supposed to. Um, Jesus, again, definitely existed. Oh, I have a slide for all this. Wow. Don't have to go yeah. off of memory it's here. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Jesus definitely taught and he performed miracles. Um, again, the two data points that are extremely well known about Jesus is his baptism and his death. Um, but there are other things that are quite well known about him that he performed miracles, he argued with the Jewish establishment, he had disciples, and he founded the Christian religion. Uh, well, he founded the Christian religion, it's not very disputed either, I don't think. Who else would have done it? Is there evidence of David's or Brother Solomon's temple? The foundation stones? Good question. The There's definitely foundations of the second temple. Second temple the I'm not sure about the first temple. Uh, that's, a, that's a really good question. So there are tons of resources online, and I didn't want to double it, and also I ran out of time, of all the archaeology supporting Christianity. And every year there's more things found, and there's more difficulties from last year that are resolved through new information. So there's tons of things that definitely line up. There are some things that don't line up, uh, and I think the big one right now that they're talking about is the walls of Jerusalem, uh, or uh, Jericho, uh, the famous city that the walls fell down. Uh, through archaeological research, it, um, it wasn't destroyed at the right time, and it's been continue, continually inhabited, it, I think is the issue, um, although this isn't really my field. And so there, there's issues with that, with what the Bible says, that it was conquered and then it was not inhabited for a while. Um, and what is actually found archaeologically. And there's other issues like that. Um, uh, some that have been resolved have been things like uh, in Acts, uh, they talk about the prefix in one place instead of calling them something else. Um, or um, in Daniel, it talks about when, if Daniel uh, interprets the writing on the wall, he'd be the third ruler in the land. Why wasn't he the second ruler? Um, so the, there, there are all these sorts of, of tension points because we, we're knowing, we're learning more and more and more about ancient history, and in in large point, um, how can I say that? Most of the data points line up, but there are some that don't. So how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the tensions? 
Uh, usually when we talk about archaeology, we just talk about the good news, we don't talk about the bad news. Um, but I want to give you some tools for interpreting what do we do with the bad news. So uh, the first point is that the main facts of the religion are verified. Again, where the Jews were, that Jesus existed, the main facts are verified. Now we can contrast this with another religion such as Mormonism. Um, and one of the, the key teachings of their religion is that uh, the ten lost tribes of Israel that were conquered by the Assyrians and they kind of disappeared from history, these people emigrated over to the New World and became the North American, Native North Americans. This is one of the key, one of the ideas within Mormonism. So this is clearly, you know, blown out of the water by a whole host of, um, for a whole host of reasons, not least of which is just genetic studies. And we know there are um, African, Caucasian, and Mongoloid, you know, skeletal systems, and Native North Americans are Mongoloids and um, the Israelite people are Caucasians, and so these are different. There's no possible way that this could be true. And it seems to be like a fairly central point within the Mormon religion that the Native North Americans are one of the ten tribes of Israel. And so this becomes fairly devastating. If one of the major points is, is disproven conclusively, it might be time to get a new religion, um, honestly. But for us, the major points, I mean, Jesus existed. Uh, a hundred years ago, that was a serious question and debate. Did Jesus actually exist? Or it's just myths? I mean, hey, if Jesus didn't exist, let's go home and, and do something else, right? Um, but it's, it's been definitely verified that Jesus does exist, okay? So the first point we need to make is that a lot of these issues, such as the, the walls of Jericho, such as other things like that, they're not main points. And uh, for these minor issues, I mean... I can just come up with a few issues, a few options. I mean, maybe there was another city called Jericho. Maybe they, they found a city, they thought it was Jericho, but it's not Jericho. Um, or potentially, um, I, I mentioned last week and I, um, about there are degrees of comfort with the Bible. And I talked about, I believe in inerrancy. But there are some, such as uh, the, the seminary that I studied at, that would be, that would follow Karl Barth and say that the Bible becomes the word of God as you preach it. And God uses it, even though it's got errors in it, God still uses it. So if there's really errors in the Bible, we don't need to fall all the way down from here to atheism. But perhaps the Bible becomes the word of God, even though there's, there's some errors in it. Um, as well, did I put this here or later? There's, there's enough to conclude that the Bible is historically valuable document. Yeah, that was even perhaps before or after Barthianism. We have a very hard view of inerrancy, and sometimes it's somewhat fragile, that if contemporary archaeology doesn't line up with the Bible's view of archaeology, this will crumble and we're going to fall all the way down to atheism. Now, is it possible that we can read inerrancy in a way that has a little bit of give and take, and a little bit of, of uh, that's able to take a few um, typos or a few inaccuracies within the Bible? 
within you know the larger story, but the, the main story is correct. Perhaps there's some some give and take. Um, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy is kind of the, the document that defines what inerrancy is. The Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. So this is a document that is conservative enough that um, just got nailed for, for mentioning my, uh, my seminary, so maybe I won't. A lot of people will say this is too conservative for us. Okay, we believe in inerrancy, but not defined by the Chicago Statement. This is like ultra-right, you know, really this is as conservative as it gets. Um, but even they will have a broader understanding of what inerrancy actually means. If I can find the point, did I have it written on here? Article 14, we, we affirm the unity and internal consistency of scriptures. We deny that alleged errors and discrepancies that have not yet been resolved vitiate or disprove the truth claims of the Bible. So the Chicago Statement, the authors are, are willing to say, look, there are issues out there that we haven't, we haven't figured out yet. But that doesn't mean we don't believe in inerrancy. We believe there are these issues, and we haven't dealt with them yet. Um, we, <coughs> but we still hold on to our idea of inerrancy. Also, they mention in here that inerrancy is a theological term. This is point eight, point thirteen. Sorry, um, with reference to the so this is inerrancy. We're we're using this word in a theological way, which is different than what you would use in, in culture. And we deny that inerrancy is negated by biblical phenomena such as lack of modern technical precision. So in our day and age. No matter what you write, especially history book, needs to have modern technical precision. Um, this is the bottom of page three, actually. Do you have this? Um, as well, irregularities, irregularities of grammar or spelling, observational descriptions of nature. So Jesus said the smallest seed is, is the mustard seed. This is an observational description of nature. This doesn't. This we read that from a modern lens and we say that's an error. This is an observational description of nature that isn't an error in their way of thinking. The reporting of falsehoods, the use of hyperbole and round numbers. So a lot of the numbers in the Old Testament, they don't necessarily line up when it's talking about the numbers from um, Ezra and the numbers, I think, from Nehemiah, the number of people that came back from Babylon. One simple explanation is they're just rounding up the numbers. It's hard to count heads when you get to that many people. Um, topical arrangement of material. John is arranged differently than, than the other three. Um, Jesus cleanses the temple at the beginning of his ministry, not at the end. Probably just a topical arrangement of material. Uh, these are not um, people that are compelled by our modern worldview to write things necessarily chronologically. Variant selections of material and parallel accounts with the use of free citations. So, as we're trying to to deal with how to how to process these three buckets, the issue at stake here is inerrancy, and is saying, look, if if there's too many conflicts here, then the Bible can't really be inerrant. But sometimes these conflicts only come because we're reading the Bible from our modern perspective, and we say there can't be any typos, there can't be any errors, it has to all be, I mean, after you write a book, you send it off to the editors, and they, 
put red ink all over the place, send it back, and then you send it off to the fact checker, and they put red ink all over it and send it back. This is not how most people communicate for most of history. And so even the, the authors of the Chicago statement say, look, there's room for typos. This is normal human communication. Um, not affecting the essential issues, the, the, the main facts of the Christian religion, but there, there's going to be some tension points here. Um, as well, a lot of the issues here come from, they're, they're presented as a conflict, but really it's a matter of silence, which is an issue depending on what perspective you approach it at, from. So if you're approaching from a secular academic perspective, you need proof before you believe in Abraham. You need proof before you believe in David. And if there is no proof, then for you, these people didn't exist, or they're just mythical figures. So one of the courses I took online, um, the teacher began her, her talk by saying, look, there is no proof for the historical Abraham. There is no proof for the historical David. Um, and so we need to progress. We need to move forward in our, in our understanding of the Old Testament on the understanding these people didn't actually exist. And these are mythological accounts. Um, but is evidence of absence, is the absence of evidence evidence of absence? Is the fact that we can't find the proof evidence that these people didn't exist? Again, think of your great-grandfather. What could you actually prove about him? Or your great-grandmother. I don't know why I'm so patriarchal with this. You know, one of your ancestors, three or four generations, you can't prove anything about them. Perhaps if you find their gravestone, but even finding the gravestone is going to be difficult if you go back too many generations with immigration and, and how much people have moved around. Evidence, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So you can just think about a crime scene, and the detective looks at the crime scene and says, I can't prove that this person was here. Um, it could be that they wore gloves and they didn't leave any trace. The, the fact that the, that's what you call an argument from silence. Um, and you can't build a case from silence. It, they may have admitted, they may not have they just didn't leave any evidence behind. So a lot of the issues, such as the existence, the real existence of Abraham, are simply arguments from silence. We haven't discovered Abraham, but you know what? Travel around the tent. He never conquered anybody. He didn't write his exploits on you know, stone steles or um, uh, um, clay tablets that would have been burned in a fire and preserved for thousands of years. What would we really expect to find about the historical Abraham? Mm. And so this is only an issue when we would expect to find evidence of somebody. In, in the case of somebody like a nomad like Abraham, we wouldn't really expect to find evidence of him. Now, we would expect to find evidence of like the Israelite people or David. And so David was one of the issues that for a long time, look, we don't have any historical evidence for him. He was supposed to be this great king. He's supposed to exert his influence all over the Mediterranean. Why didn't we find evidence for him? And so this was kind of a keystone point for a lot of um, secular or liberal people to say, look, we need to reinterpret the Old Testament because we haven't found David. Well, guess what? We found David. Woohoo! We found David. <laughs> I should have had a, a picture of the, um, the the rock. I forget what it's called, but there was an inscription found: David, King of the Jews. And this turned everything on its head because all of a sudden, hey, we discovered David. So now, 
one of these main issues of silence, and silence is a place where we would expect to find something, now moves over to agreement. And this sort of thing is happening all the time in archaeology. And this is why I don't think it's ridiculous that the Chicago Statement says, look, there's issues out there that haven't been resolved, such as the walls of Jericho and, and other issues like that. But every, it seems every decade or so, there's new things from silence or conflict that are moving over as new archaeological discoveries happen. Do you know, like, culturally how they recorded? Like, you know, you can read the Bible, and it's like, this is the, this father, and then this was the sons, and this was the sons, and this, like, how was that all kept? Was it just verbal, or? That's a good question that I don't know the answer to. Because I'm like, well, but David, it seems like somebody record, yeah. you know, David, and da 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 because you, it's like sometimes you're reading, it's like, okay, enough of, oh, this was the son of so-and-so, and then, yeah. Yeah. you know, it's like, it's, it's so recorded. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of oral history. I know that um, not so much now, but not too long ago, in at a Jewish Bible a young man was meant to be able to recite his ancestral history mm -hmm. back to really? the twelfth time. Yeah. yeah. Just to, that was that was one of the requirements of manhood. Yeah. Was that you become the, the the next person in the oral chain. Wow. Yeah. And and that's something that I think William Lane Craig will mention in the next. Um, next chapter is that we, we uh, on the prise, uh, we don't give enough credit for oral traditions and how in an oral culture you memorize, certain, I mean, I would know a whole lot more about my grandfather in an oral culture because the stories would be told around the campfire or around the fireplace for generations and you keep the memories alive of the exploits of your, your fathers and your grandfathers and, and your grandmothers as well, I don't know why, so patriarchal today. Um, but your ancestors. And um, this is where, as we're going to get into the New Testament, it's completely conceivable that solid memories would have been passed on for mm -hmm. the one generation between Jesus' death mm -hmm. and the writing of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Even for us, I mean, if you can think about something that happened 30 years ago, people that are alive today are going to have a fairly, even myself who was, you know, two years old at the time, I'm going to have a pretty good, what, what year was 30 years ago? 1986. 1986. What happened in, in the mid-80s that was important? AIDS. AIDS. <laughs> Historical figures in the mid-80s. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that's, <laughs> oh, that's great. That's a great answer. But who's, who's a major historical figure in the mid-80s that died? Did Mother Teresa die around then? No. No. She died in the 90s. When did JFK die? 60s. 60s. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so bad on recent history. So bad. Yeah. Anyways, I mean, if you can think about the span of 30 years and some of the things that happened and the major people that died 30 years ago, especially, you know, if you can think of somebody really famous in your community that died 30 years ago, are you going to have fairly accurate information about him or is it going to be turned into myth by now? Um, since I'm on that topic and I'm, I'm just really disorganized today, um, I will mention that one of the big things that's come up in the last 100 years on Jesus studies is at the beginning, there was a belief that there was a long span of time between the death of Jesus and the New Testament. As we're going to see, that span has gotten shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter as new research has shown when the New Testament documents were actually written and that they weren't modified by the later church. And any modifications that did creep in, again, minor typos and things like that, They've all been reversed mm -hmm. to the point, as we're going to see, where we have 
in the New Testament that was written. We have the documents. They're right here in front of us. Um, and they were written within 20, 30 years of the death of Christ. And so the earlier ideas that you still hear recycled about Jesus as a myth, that these ideas were passed on and passed on and passed on. Because the idea of myth, this, this happens, right? Uh, who was the original Arthur? I mean, maybe he was somebody that, that conquered somebody and, and fought a few battles. But all these stories kind of snowballed until he becomes, you know, the once and future king, uh, you know, in the hope of, uh, of Britain and all this sort of stuff. And, and all these fanciful stories. But that takes time. And you can't start these sorts of myths while the living memory of the person is still ongoing. Mm -hmm. And there's been studies on this. How long does it actually take for the living memory to die and for the myths to start taking place? Even Alexander the Great, um, the first couple accounts of his, of his life were written, I think, about 200 years after his life. And they don't include mythological editions. You get three, 400 years later, then all of a sudden there's all these mythical things and, and fanciful stories that start getting added into his story. So 30 years is nothing, and it just about rules out the possibility of myth, although you can always pr present that as an option. So let's talk about the transmission of the New Testament. Uh, now that we're past the introduction and we have five minutes before we get to class, <laughs> or, or go to questions, but I think we're going we're gonna to well overwhelm the question time. Um, the reliability of the New Testament. We have three issues here. Um, the transmission is point A, the reception, um, is point B and the uh, well, the transmission, the dating, and the reception. So the transmission of the New Testament. So there is a traditional argument. Uh, one of you guys gave it on your Q and A, and I appreciated it. Uh, I did write that this is an older argument and there's better arguments now. The older argument is that um, the, the Bible is transmitted very faithfully by very faithful people that did a great job and we can trust them. Okay? This is, a, this is true, that the Bible was transmitted very accurately and very faithfully. But it's kind of irrelevant now because we have the original documents uh, that we can reconstruct. Um, the... the the image that is often presented is this game of telephone. Who here has played the game of telephone? <laughs> so there's many, sometimes very uh, racially and correctly called Chinese whispers, uh, also known as telephone, or there's other names for it. But in one way or another, you, you line up and you transmit information from one person to another, either whispering in their ear or writing on a piece of paper, and then the, the next person has to whisper or write on a piece of paper. Somehow the information is transmitted. And at the beginning, you say fuzzy slippers, and somewhere it becomes funny, funny, fuzzy rabbits, and then it becomes funny rabbits, and then it becomes Bugs Bunny. Yeah. And somehow, fuzzy slippers has become Bugs Bunny, and we all laugh, and it's, it's really hilarious. Um, and so, the claim is that this is what happens with the New Testament. After it's been transmitted for so long, there has been all these distortions that have crept in, and we can't trust the Bible anymore. Um, and we need to get Dan Brown up here, <laughs> so we have a straw man to knock down. Um, so he says, this is in the Da Vinci Code, at this gathering, the Council of Nicaea, 324 AD, many aspects of Christianity were debated and voted upon. The date of Easter, the role of the bishops, the administration of sacraments, and of course, the divinity of Jesus. Until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless. A mortal, that's the wrong quote, but also very interesting. Um... <laughs> 
shoot, I don't have the, the right quote up here. Um, also, later on in that quote, I believe, it talks about how there were a whole bunch of Gospels and they voted out the ones that did not support the divinity of Christ. Um, and Where's the one about it falling, falling from heaven? So I got totally the wrong quote from Gavin Brown, which is distracting rather than helpful, I apologize. Um, elsewhere he talks about how uh, we don't have an original version of the Bible, that it, it's transformed throughout the generations, it's a story of tumultuous times, and every generation tells the story a little bit differently until we get to the Council of Nicaea, and they vote out the ones they don't like, and they just keep the ones that talk about the divinity of Christ. So we're going to talk about, um, again, the, the secular academic perspective studies the Bible, and evangelicals tend to talk about higher and lower criticism. And criticism is the word uh, that we need to use instead of science, because this isn't science like keeping things up in a test tube. Um, it's criticism, where we're um, proposing critical methods of understanding texts. And we're going to ask questions, and we're going to try and get to the bottom of things. So there's higher criticism and lower criticism. And lower criticism is how we get the New Testament. And this is a real recognized discipline. This isn't a bunch of, of cardinals or pastors or something off in a corner saying, this is what we really believe. This is people at you know, the greatest institutions, Harvard, Stanford, whatever, that are studying these documents and that are um, finding out what the original actually said. So the actual process of transmission was something like this. It wasn't one string of information. It was a multitude of strings of information. And the original documents were copied and copied and copied by hand. And they ended up disseminated all over the Roman Empire. And so the, the dis, um, there's two dissimilarities between the game of telephone and the actual transmission of the New Testament. One is that we're just being goofy when we're playing the game of telephone, right? And people are intentionally trying to distort the message, otherwise it's not funny. Right. Whereas the New Testament was transmitted very seriously by very passionate people. Um, and secondly, because we have multiple streams of information. So if you can imagine the same game of telephone, but you have four or five different streams coming off. And then imagine that instead of it just being whispered, it's being copied onto documents. And then, we don't get all the documents, but we get a document from over here, we get a document from here, and we get a bunch that are later from all these different streams. Even if people are being goofy, if somebody really wants to get at the truth, even if they don't have the original here, which we don't have the original, you can see how somebody could collect all this information, process it, and get at what the original is. And it doesn't take rocket science to see how that would work. Um, Here's an example of something, what it might look like. Um, so, the, ol the only Son of God is the original text. And this is copied, the only Son of God, the only Son of God, and it's copied again. And right here, the word only is dropped out, in this text here. And then it gets transmitted on, gets transmitted on, and so that when you receive this, and we have tons around the, the first millennia, uh, but we have a bunch that are much earlier than that. But as they're received over here, even if we just had the first millennia, things from the uh, 1000 AD, you have some documents that say this, but most of them say the only Son of God. 
So there's criteria to enter in, such as the, the smaller version is usually, and this is a bad example of that, but the smaller version is usually the more original. Also, things that are more jagged, more jarring, tend to be the more original. People would tend to smooth things out, make things simpler. And there's this whole field, I'm not going to try and get into the whole criteria, just to say there are people that have studied this, there are people that have worked this out, and they're basically done. It's, it's kind of a dead field now. No field is really dead. But there's, there was a big you know, discovery of a bunch of documents in, in the beginning of the, at the end of the 19th century, and they've all been processed to where now we have basically a very, 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 very accurate copy of the New Testament. And um, they, they always bat around these numbers, and I, I'm not even sure what to do with them, but I think the res what they've said is um, the, the reconstructed New Testament that we have is somewhere like 95% accurate to what was received. So you have the received text, and then you have the reconstructed text, and they're, they're basically the same thing. Uh, the differences are mostly concerned with um, with spelling errors, and then there's some things that crept in, but it was very easy to see they were not important, uh, or it was easy to get rid of them. And then there's a few very minor things that um, that how should I say this? Um, they have meaningful. I did not create the graphics. I'm trying to figure out what they mean by meaningful and viable. Um, the point is that most of the differences here are spelling and grammar. And then uh, that's the difference between the received text and the, um, the discovered text. But the degree to which we know that the, that the discovered text is actually accurate is astronomical, like 99 point whatever percent. And some people will say well, maybe there's question with some things that might be lower than that. But the point is that this book here, this is the New Testament in Greek, this is basically mm -hmm. what was written. Yeah. There may be some minor typos in here, and if you look at the footnotes in this, it could be this way, it could be that way. But this is the New Testament that Mark wrote, that John wrote, that Paul wrote. So, um, this should give us tremendous confidence in our New Testament, because these wonderful secular academics, that sometimes we call them liberals, sometimes we, we get angry at them, but they've done a great job of giving us what the New yeah. Testament actually was. Thank you very much. Uh, through this process called text criticism or yeah. lower criticism. Oh, lower yeah. criticism. The, the, the more professional word is text criticism, but evangelicals tend to call it lower criticism because we want to make a distinction between higher criticism. And we're going to say we like lower criticism, but we don't like higher criticism. That's what a lot of evangelicals say. Criticism. Yeah, so let's... Do I want to do that now, or they? Well, I just mentioned it now, so let's talk about the higher criticism. Um, higher criticism is when you're going to take um, the secular academic method, and you're going to start applying that to the Bible and saying, "Okay, miracles didn't happen, um, and so how do we how do we understand what actually took place based on this perspective?" Um, and there's going to be source criticism where you're, where you're going to say, "Okay, this is the book of, of Mark." What sources did he actually use? This is where we get into Q and the Markin source. Um, this is where we get into um, trying to reconstruct uh, a picture of what the early church was or, or the early Jesus movement and then trying to understand the bigger picture of what, um, how the New Testament was actually written. Now, evangelicals will tend to reject a lot of this 
because it's based on a naturalistic perspective. So if you're ruling out miracles from the beginning, you're not going to assume that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God that came and, you know, the dove came down on him and, and he, he performed all these miracles and he rose from the dead. Uh, and so we're, right at the beginning, we're going to have a very different way of understanding the New Testament. Um, and as well, they're just... And so from that difference, they're going to try and reconstruct based on the options that were there. Perhaps Jesus was a cynic, perhaps he was a Jewish uh, teacher, and these ideas. How did, so then how did, how did Jesus become God? Well, perhaps it... Paul maybe came up with the idea, or it came from, you know, Mark, whoever talked to Mark had this idea, and then that came into Mark's gospel. So they'll, they'll come up with these different theories. Um, the point is, it, it's, it's a helpful distinction to say um, a lot of the critical methods are going to be higher criticism because they're based on the outside looking in to our religion, okay? What we said at the beginning, this is putting on the liberal hat, liberal, so to speak, the outside looking in. So if you can just imagine um, a Muslim who is taking a course on Islam from a secular institution, there's going to be a lot of points where he's going to be like, hey, hold on a second, I can't accept that, I can't go along with that. Because he's from the inside looking out, and there's certain key points that he believes, which is the essence of his religion. Um, and again, for us, this is why we have a problem with higher criticism, is because we don't have any problem with miracles, uh, which is what a lot of it comes back to. Okay, um, what about, because I've mentioned a few times that the received text and the original text, there's a slight discrepancy between them. Somewhere between 8 to 5%, people will say it's 1%. All depends on how you weight things. Um, there are some differences that, that crept in. Due to time, let's just go over these, these briefly. Uh, in John 5, 4, there's the story of uh, the lame man at the well where it's taught off of page 6. Uh, and the, the man is lying there, and he says, there's all these cripples around the pool, and, he, and Jesus says, are you lame, or something like that, and he says, I want to get into the pool, but when I get in, when I try, and when an angel stirs the water, somebody else always goes in before me. And there's a note in the text, because there was an angel that was through the waters, and whoever got in first would get healed. So that note is not actually in the original. And you can see very easily why that would creep in, because... People are reading this and they're like, why is everybody around this pool wanting to get in? So somebody added a footnote that ended up part of the text because they didn't have a way of providing footnotes in the text. Um, and this crept in and we can take it out, put it down to the footnote. That doesn't cause an issue. Uh, Mark 9.29 says, um, this kind of demon only comes out through prayer and fasting. The word and fasting was added probably around the time of the Desert Fathers. Um, in, I believe, the 5th or 6th century, and so the word and fasting isn't actually in the original. Um, in Acts 8, 37, uh, Philip talks to um, uh, a man from Ethiopia and uh, shares the gospel with him, and as they're talking, he, the man says, here's some water, why don't I get baptized? And in the original, Philip says, okay, let's get baptized. Uh, in the received text, he says, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and, and something else, then you can be saved. Or believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Very famous text. It's very helpful for us because it, it encapsulates you know, Christian doctrine in a very tight package. Uh, funny story, one of my first, um, my father-in-law is a pastor, and he said the first baptismal service he had, he went to preach this, and he was using somebody else's Bible. His, his text wasn't in the Bible. And he was looking for it, and he was like, 
And, and the verses went like 36, 38. And he was like, where's 37? Um, and so this sort of thing causes discomfort for us. If we're used to the King James Bible or the New King James Bible, we're used to you know, the received text. Uh, the Lord's Prayer uh, in Matthew 6, 9 to 13, and the original is longer. In Luke, he paraphrases the Lord's Prayer, and so it's shorter. And so if you're used to the King James Version, it adds phrases from Matthew into Luke, just to kind of make it so it's the same thing. Um, so how can we deal with this? There, we can talk a lot, we can talk probably the whole class about our reactions to this. It, it, it causes us discomfort to say there are these, these things that crept in. As we're dialoguing with Muslims, they're going to jump all over this and be like, ah, we told you, the, the Bible is full of errors. We told you, uh, the Quran is more uh, reliable. Um, it causes us discomfort, and yet um, I think the fact that we're able to embrace that and the fact that we as a religion are able to change, I mean, this Bible and any Bible that you have is based on the best possible sources, except for the King James Bible in the original version. That's what we're going to talk about in a second. But the, the great broad stream of Christianity is just moving heads. New information? Hey, we're interested in truth. We're going to change our Bible on these minor points. Okay, We're going to have the best possible representation of what the Bible actually said. Causes us discomfort. Makes us feel awkward. Um, but we want truth more than we want to feel comfortable. Um, in contrast to Muslims... It is a sin, it is blasphemy to do higher critical methods or lower critical methods on the Quran. And it's just forbidden. You cannot do that. Whereas Christians, I think we can be proud of the fact that we have allowed this work to go forward and we have the best possible um, translation of the New Testament. So is the woman caught in adultery now considered to be fabricated? Yes, so the, then there's two larger sections. The woman caught in adultery in John 8, 1-11, um, it is likely not in the original. So the, the best source that we have, I think it comes from 250, the whole New Testament is there, uh, one of the actual sources. And there's two things that aren't in that book, is the woman caught in adultery and the ending of Mark. So these become, you know, the, well, we'll talk about the woman caught in adultery first because it's less important. The ending of Mark obviously is far more significant. Um, John Piper preached on this passage, and I was interested in how he would deal with it. He said, look, whether or not it was in the original, this is still a very early story that is still used by the church for centuries, and it accurately, and, and so it's, it's possible because it's so early, it's possible this is a tradition that actually happened. It just ended up getting in later, past the deadline, I guess. Um, so it's possible that it's actually true, and it, it encapsulates well a lot of Jesus' teaching. I mean, the woman caught in adultery is one of the, the nicest stories or, or the, the best ways of encapsulating Jesus' teaching. Uh, so he then went, away, went ahead and preached on it um, after that caveat. The ending of Mark uh, provides more issues. And this is where, as I talked about um, feeling nervous about presenting this material, um, it, it can be very disconcerting to know that the ending of Mark um, that, that we're used to reading was not in the originals. So the, um, again, the, this, this document that we found, I forget what it's called. I think I have it somewhere. Um, 
Anyways, um, it's not in the original text. The original text ended, the, the women go to the tomb, and they see a man sitting in, at the right of, um, they see the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large, entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen, he is not here, behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The end. <laughs> so that's where the oldest source for Mark ends. And then everything that follows is material come that's been borrowed from Mark and Luke. Except for this whole issue of um, drinking poison and lifting up and carrying snakes, which is interesting because that portion likely, you know, it, it's very possible that it wasn't original. Um, so what do we do with this? This is where um, conspiracy theories come in and also where, um, I mean, there's all these fictional books about like discovering the lost ending of Mark and, um, and what might be in this ending of Mark and it's going to overthrow the whole Christian religion and everything like this. Um, it is possible that Mark just ends there. It's a little bit of a jarring way to end the book. They, the woman went out and they were, they were terribly, they didn't talk to anybody because fear and trembling had seized them. It's like, usually you end a sermon on kind of a high note. It's kind of a strange place to end it. Um, and so most people don't see it ending there. They see likely the original copy or, or somewhere early in the transmission process, the last page of this papyrus document actually just got worn off or burned off or ripped off or something. Um, so, that being said, this is not great cause for alarm because, um, well, first of all, I just think it's cool that, um, I don't know how I can express this coolness to you, but <laughs> our vision of the New Testament is so accurate, we can see things like this. Like, I can, I can almost see you know, the papyrus document, and who knows what it was. Was it fire? Was it, you know, persecution? And somebody, the Bible got ripped from somebody's hand, and the, and the last page got ripped off. Um, these are, you can just see the human history in it. And it's, it's cool that we can, through, through these very accurate methods of text criticism, we can see all this is accurate, and then there's a page missing. Um, and uh, anyway, so it just, emotionally, that's how it connects with me. It's just, it's, it's human history. Um, but it, if we discover the last page of Mark, which is possible, uh, there's new discoveries happening all the time, although ISIS is kind of putting somewhat of a damper on that. Um, but if there was a lost, if we ever find the last page of Mark, um, we, we would expect it to be in keeping with the rest of the book of Mark. And here you don't have to copy because I've left the information for you. Throughout Mark, Jesus is the son of man who has the authority to forgive sins, has the authority to drive out demons. He has authority to make new laws. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He will come to judge the earth. He will suffer and die for humanity. He will rise from the dead. He seals a new covenant in his blood. He calls himself God. At his trial, he says, um, I am, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. I am, likely, he said it in Aramaic or Hebrew, which is Yahweh, which is I am, which is complete blasphemy. Even I probably shouldn't have said that before I offended somebody. Um, so he says, I am before the court. 
calls himself the Son of God, if you know anything about the Old Testament. And he is called the Son of God at the beginning and at the end of the book. So if there's something else which likely would include the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, which are in the other Gospels, not in this one, uh, you, we wouldn't expect it to overturn what we already have here. The other Gospels, written only a decade later, all speak of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. Paul's writing in the sources of, of Paul predate Mark, and they all speak of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Um, and for these reasons, the fact that we don't have the last page of Mark shouldn't cause us trouble, even though it's kind of weird. Um, so we have ten minutes left. What are we going to do with our time? What is the most important? So we can talk about the King James Bible. Obviously, there's people that will say, forget about this. We're sticking with the received text because we're scared of liberalism because we don't like talking about the last page of Mark being gone. We don't like preaching sermons and a, a verse that we're used to isn't there anymore. Just forget this. We're sticking with the King James Bible. There's those people out there. Um, and if you're one of them, God bless you. I don't want to destabilize you in any way. I'm just saying um, we shouldn't, we don't need to be afraid of this because uh, it, you know, takes us a while to digest, and then we realize, you know what, we have a very reliable uh, document. Um, what do we deal, do with um, Jesus' statement in Matthew 5.18 that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away? And not even a dot or a jittle, or a jot or a tittle, sorry, will pass away from the law. That's the, the old King James way of saying it. Um, that is a hard... I don't really know what to do with that passage. I, I did some searching online, and I had, didn't really see anybody addressing that. But I think the way that I would address that personally is to say, look, we have the Bible. And from our modern perspective, we say, well, there's typos in there. There's places where, we, where in the text it could be this, it could be that. And it doesn't change anything, but we would just expect it to be perfect. And it's not. Um, apparently, that's not an issue for God. <laughs> And our idea of what inerrancy is needs to broaden out to accept these minor um, typos and, and the, the fingerprints of humanity that are on the New Testament and the Old Testament. Um, okay, so let's get on to the very important question of the dating and authorship of the New Testament. I'm mostly going to talk about the date when the New Testament was written. So, um, Jesus died, I don't know why they put him in 27. Um, but most people see Jesus dying at 33, some at 30. And then we start to have the New Testament written. 1 Thessalonians, Galatians, Philemon, Philippians, uh, 1 Corinthians, and Romans, all Paul's uh, writings, happening between 50 and 67. Paul dies at 67. Uh, and then at 70, the temple is destroyed, Jerusalem is destroyed. And then we have um, Matthew, sorry. Mark is written before that, and then the rest of the Gospels are after that. You don't need to memorize all of this, except to say that Paul and Mark are the earliest, according mm -hmm. to the secular academic perspective. Paul and Mark are the earliest. And we mentioned briefly source criticism. And evangelicals have tended to be very resistant to source criticism, because what liberals will tend to do is they'll, they'll say, well, okay, Mark is fine, but we can go behind Mark and see the sources that he used, and then reconstruct these sources, and then say these sources are the original, like this is, this is real Christianity, and Mark is a fraud. And so this approach, you know, is, we resist this as evangelical, because it's a hypothetical, for one thing, I mean, Q 
is, is a hypothetical document. The other documents that they, they say are behind the Gospels, these are hypothetical documents, and Mark is a real document. Uh, also because it, it tends to be presented as an anti-Christian option. Um, but the so there are some sources that divide off very neatly and clearly from the New Testament. And these are helpful because they help to show that the sources come even before um, the very early date of the, of the uh, New Testament themselves. Yeah, so this is on page 8.3. The sources are even earlier than the New Testament. So Philippians was written in AD 62, and, this, and Jesus died in 33, so this is uh, 29 years after the fact. But Philippians 2, 1 to 11, where it talks about have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, became, took on the, the, the form of a servant and became made in the likeness of a sinful man. Philipp this, this thing in Philippians 2 was likely a song that Paul integrated into his epistle. Mm -hmm. So the song had to come before the epistle. So this quote-unquote source comes even earlier than 29 years after after the death of Jesus, it could have been, we don't even know, but it could have been somewhere in there 15, 20 years after the death of Jesus. As well, and even earlier, and I guess we'll, we'll close on this um, source, is 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 3 to 11. This, as far as I know, is the earliest portion of the entire New Testament, so it definitely uh, is worth reading. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 11. First Corinthians fifteen three to eleven. We'll start at verse one. For I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which I all, which you also received, in which you stand, by which you were saved, if you hold fast the word that I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. So he's talking about this is the message that I preached to you and that you received. You received it from me. For what I delivered to you as of first importance, that I also received. So he said, I received this from somebody else. I passed it on to you, I received it. So Paul is writing now AD 53. First Corinthians comes in AD 53 or so. 53 to 54. And then he shares something. And because the Greek is very tightly packed and it's ta 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 ta, -ta mm -hmm. comes as kind of a creedal formula. In fact, this is one of the things that, that the later creeds was based on, this passage and other passages like it. I deliver to you as a first importance that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. He appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So this is a source in Paul that comes before Paul. And Paul is writing it at AD 53, 20 years after the death of Jesus. And this, did I say 53? Yeah, 53. And this source comes even before 20 years after the death of Jesus. So, and, and it's so clearly Christological, it's so clear that Jesus died for our sins, um, that it's, it's very strong evidence that um, the earliest Jesus followers worshipped him as God. As well, um, in 1 Corinthians 16.22, Jesus said, or Paul says, if anybody doesn't agree with this, let him be accursed, Maranatha. The phrase Maranatha comes from Aramaic, which is not in the language of the New Testament. 
It's the language of Jesus and his followers. And so the very, very, very earliest Jesus' followers would have sp spoken Aramaic, and quickly it, it switched over to Koine Greek as, as you know, was reaching out to a wider audience. And this phrase, we can, the way that he used it, it's like this is something, this is Christianese of the first century. This is something that they said. It's Maranatha, Maranatha. It's kind of like amen. It's kind of like um, something that you would say if you really want to emphasize something. And what this means is come Lord Jesus in Aramaic. And so this is another fragment. This is a source that comes before Paul as he's writing in AD 53, 20 years after the death of Christ, that points to something even earlier uh, where um, that indicates that the earliest Christians worshipped Jesus. So I did say that this was going to be a two-part thing, and we're going to have to clean up the mess next week. Um, my professional ego is, is quite wounded by that. I really thought that I could get this all in. I did cut out the whole Jesus studies. I, I thought I were going to talk about the history of, of Jesus studies as well, which is completely ridiculous. Ephesians get written in the 90s. Yeah, so that's part of the mess we need to clean up, is that um, liberals or, or secular people would say there is... some Paul didn't write all of his epistles. And so they would say some of them are definitely written by Paul and some of them are not. So this is where we get to higher criticism because they look at the, the, the words he used, the subjects he touched, and they say, well, these ones we know Paul definitely wrote. Romans, First. Corinthians and Galatians are usually the established ones. And so they'll take what are the vocabulary, what are the, the subject and content, and then what is dissimilar to that. And then so they'll say, well, these parts here, especially the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus, well, this is very different language, very different content. And so this, Paul probably didn't write that. And so then they'll push that after Paul's death. Now, this again, um, it's just, there, there isn't proof it's more, this is, based on our reconstruction of early Christianity, this is what we believe, is that Paul, you know, had these sorts of ideas, so he wouldn't have written that. And I'm saying, well, based on what the church has always received as Paul's writings, why, why would you divide that? Um, so I don't, I'm not convinced by that, but I, want, I do want to put it out there as this is something that, that is often discussed. Something that's really important about that is that all the really important Christological documents are all firmly established. Romans, Galatians, and 1 Corinthians, there's no debate. These are definitely Paul's epistles. Uh, and the main question is about the pastoral epistles. And my question is, this is a very different genre. Now he's switched from speaking to a church to speaking intimately to his disciples. So we would expect the content and the language to be different. Also, this is what he wrote towards the end of his ministry, likely in prison, likely trying to pass on the baton, so sure, for sure, that his, the way that he starts to speak is going to be different. He starts speaking about um, keep guarding the trust that has been passed on to you. And he starts speaking more about scriptures as a whole and including his writings in scriptures and, and preserve scriptures and, and, and pass it on. And, and um, so there, to me, I'm just not convinced by these sorts of arguments. But I really want to highlight there's a big difference between higher and lower criticism. If you're in academia... This division doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. This is an evangelical thing. Mm -hmm. But when people are talking about the text criticism and establishing an authoritative Old Testament text, you can look at their methods and be like, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, a shorter document, a shorter version of the passage is likely older, a more jagged version is likely older. Something that's embarrassing to later Christian doctrine is going to tend to get cut out. 
Uh, later Christians tended to slide a trinity in wherever they could, and, and that, that sort of thing gets taken out because it's just way too easy and convenient. Um, so lower criticism, I agree with, and this all makes sense. Higher criticism, I just say, this is based on your reconstruction of what you think early Christianity was, and I just happen to disagree with that. Uh, and so there'll be a lot of higher criticism stuff that I just don't agree with. Although that is kind of a very broad statement. I do want people to understand that is a broad statement. We need to know what's out there. We, I think it's important I know what's out there. It's not necessarily important that all Christians know what's out there, but it's important that we engage with it. Um, do we need to end right, right, right now? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. There's next week. Yeah. There is next week. So hold your questions for next week. Okay. Yeah. Great. So I wanted to know. Here's another homework. So I wanted to know if you yeah. could talk about the apocryphal. Yeah. So next, I will say, like next week, we're going to get into the, the Gospel of Thomas, the apocryphal Gospels, uh, the Gnostic Gospels. We're going to talk about the Council of Nicaea and the reception of, of the Gospels. Um, things that we didn't have time for today. So we will end this.